Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. As we turn to Scripture this morning, let's, uh, let's start here. Um, and for those of you who are note-takers and like doing that, we are hitting you right off the bat. Let's, let's start. I know, yes. Start here this morning. Have you ever run from something? Have you ever run from something? I, uh, when I was in, uh, somebody said nope, and I don't believe them. Uh, when I was in middle school, high school, occasionally I would decide that my middle class privileged life with two parents who loved me was just way too horrible to stick around for, and so I would run away from home. Uh, I'd usually make it a couple of blocks or a couple of hours and my dad would drive around and come find me and pull up and ask if I was ready to come home yet. That was about as far as that got. Uh, I have run away from my uh, own thoughts and emotions and insecurities a lot. Those don't always make the most interesting stories though. And I am not uh, a hunter, so I don't have any good run from charging animal stories either. So I am gonna substitute somebody else's story in here. Uh, I wanna tell you a story about a boy who was born in the 1300s into slavery. And his family had been slaves for generations just because they were the wrong race. And the slave owner uh, had decided he had enough slaves and he didn't want any more. And so he was uh, getting rid of uh, slaves and, and certainly would get rid of this baby boy, and his mom knew it. And so she hid him, and she did her very best to hide him. But when he was three months old, the slave owner's daughter discovered this little boy. And she scooped him up, and she named him Masha. And as every dad of a little girl knows, don't let them name it, right? Because if they name it, they want to keep it. So she decided she wanted to keep this little baby, like some sort of stray pet or something. And uh, daddy's girl gets what she wants, and she gets to keep baby Masha. And we don't know a ton about Masha's childhood. We know that he grew up in the slave owner's house, that even though he looked like the other slaves who were working the kitchen and changing the sheets, he got to go to class. He was educated. We assume he grew up feeling very stuck in between because to the slaves out in the field, he sounded like the owner's house. And to the people in the owner's house, he sounded like, or he looked like the slaves in the field. We don't know much more than that other than somewhere about 40 years old, Masha's life changed drastically. One day he was out in the fields with the slaves and slave drivers as we assume he had done many times before, but something today was different and Masha snapped. In watching this slave driver beat one of the slaves, I don't know if he saw his face in this slave that day or what, but he completely snapped and he killed that slave driver with his own hands. 
And he buried him himself in the soft earth right there. And Masha went to bed that night hoping that nobody had noticed. He looked around, made sure nobody from the owner's house saw him. Maybe he went to bed assuming he was safe. The next day, it became clear to him that the slaves who had been present had not kept quiet and had told the story and the other slaves all knew. And he knew it was only a matter of time until word got back to the big house and to the slave owner what had happened. So Masha took off. This boy who had grown up in some form of luxury in the slave owner's house is now just a 40-year-old escaped slave wanted for murder. So he flees into the neighboring country and the neighboring countryside, trying to hide literally in the middle of nowhere. We know he met a girl, presume he fell in love, got married, and went to work for her father, tending his new father-in-law's sheep out in the wild and deserted areas of that countryside. And we have no idea how many times every day Masha would scan the horizon looking for some animal that wanted his sheep and some human that wanted him. We know he lived that quiet, haunted life for years, maybe decades, until one day Masha's life changed drastically again. In this season heading into Easter, this season called Lent, we're talking about how God meets us in the desert places of our lives. How God provides an oasis in the middle of our deserts, in the middle of our wandering and our wondering and our doubts, our paranoia and looking over our shoulder. We talked a couple weeks ago about how God is not afraid of our doubts and our questions. He's not afraid of our wrestling with him. He's not going to give in to us, but he's not given up on us either. And then last week, Sky did a fantastic job of talking to us about the opportunities that come from these deserted and wild places, the opportunities to be alone with God, for God to connect with us in unique ways in our desert places. And this morning, I want to talk about maybe the most unique way God has ever met with somebody. The Masha in our story was born in the 1300s BC in Egypt and is better known as Moses. And some of you had that already. Most of you had that already. <laughs> Moses, the hero. Moses, the one who holds out his staff and the Red Sea parts and the people walk across. Moses, the one who rescues his people, the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. Many of us, when we think of Moses, we think of Charlton Heston or a cartoon Val Kilmer in Prince of Egypt being that amazing hero who does everything right. And in the case of Prince of Egypt, sings cool songs about it. We picture this heroic guy. But before Moses was a hero, he was simply an escaped slave 
wanted for murder, a fugitive on the run, trying to hide in the middle of nowhere, running from his history, from his people, from his shame, hoping and praying that nobody would find him. Until one day, God finds him. We pick up the story there in Exodus chapter three, starting right at the beginning in verse one. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He fled the flock, he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. I want to invite us this morning to use our imaginations. So I'm going to invite you even to close your eyes, if you would be so willing, even at home. I want to invite you to imagine, to put yourself in Moses' bare feet there standing at, staring at that burning bush. You, today, standing there staring at that burning bush that's on fire but not consumed. What is God saying to you from that bush? What words is God using for you? What are you feeling as you stare at that bush? What words do you want to say back? back to this room or feel free to stay at that bush. What God had for Moses was to remind Moses of what had broken his heart before. Hey Moses, remember those people, your people, that you got so broken hearted over, you killed somebody over it? Remember them? Yeah. I remember them too. 
So we're going to skip ahead to verse 9. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I'm the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Again, for many of us, we think of Moses, the hero, And in this moment, maybe God sees a hero in Moses, but Moses definitely does not. What Moses sees is a guy who runs, is a guy who kills, is a guy who fails. He is probably afraid or paranoid, anxious, ashamed. He's likely processing all of the ways that he has failed or fallen short. What have I done? How did I mess up this badly? How could I do or receive anything good? I want to keep track of some of the questions that Moses is asking God here. And so just to be punny, we'll call them burning questions. Thank you. Thank you. Sympathy laughs are appreciated. The first question Moses asks is this, who am I? More specifically, do you know who I am? God, do you know what I've done? Do you know how much I messed up? Do you know how badly I have failed? And the scary and true answer to this one is yes. Yes, he does. He does know everything about how you have messed up or failed. And he still chooses you. His second question is, God, do I know who you are? Who are you really? God, can I trust you? (laughs) Can I count on you? Will you come through? Will you defend me? And then his next question, I think, is tightly related to this one. Will I be rejected? God, if I go to these people and they find out who I am, God, if I speak out for you, if I live for you, if I do what you're asking me to do, will I, will I get rejected? 
God, these people do know who I am. They know my failures. They know what I've done. God, am I just gonna get rejected again? And for Moses, this is a serious question. He's already been rejected both by his people who called him a murderer and by his adopted family who want him for that murder. He's been rejected both ways. He's not so sure he wants to try to go through that again. We find that question asked in uh, Exodus chapter four, verse one. But Moses protested again, what if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say, the Lord never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw down the staff and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back. Then the Lord told him, reach out and grab its tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it and it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform this sign, the Lord told him. Then they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob really has appeared to you. Okay, when we read this in a book or we have somebody read it to us, I think sometimes some wires can get crossed in our brains and we just interpret it like we're reading a fairy tale. Mm -mm. Moses has a giant walking staff. It is probably nearly as tall as him. God says, what's in your hand? And if I'm Moses, even as scared as I would be standing in front of that bush, I'm also very confused and probably a little sarcastic. It, it's a walking staff. What does it look like? Okay. What is that in your hand? A, a walking staff, a shepherd's staff. Okay. Throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground. Again, nearly as tall as him. It turns into a snake. God says, grab it by its tail. Uh-uh. No, thank you. Moses does, and it turns back into a piece of wood. If that isn't enough, God goes on to say, Moses, hold out your hand. And as Moses holds out his hand, it's leprous. It's covered in leprosy, which means it's got open sores on it, and the skin is flaking off. And if this is who Moses now is, if God does not do something to miraculously change this, he will now be shunned from his community People with leprosy are not allowed to be around anybody else other than people with leprosy. You want to talk about rejection. God says, no big deal. Just stick it back in your cloak, pull it back out. Hand totally healed. Cool trick. Okay. God says, if neither of those work, you're going to take some water from the Nile River and you're going to dump it on the sand and it's going to turn into blood. Now, Moses remembers the Nile from when he was a kid. I'd imagine fondly. Moses also remembers what it looks like to have blood seeping into the sand in Egypt. Not so fondly. God says one of these things is going to work. Something in here should work to let him know that I sent you. But Moses isn't buying it. Verse 10 but Moses pleaded with the Lord, Oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now, even though you have spoken to me. 
I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. There's a lot of scholars who will uh, say and believe that Moses had a stutter or some sort of speech impediment. Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else. One last question for Moses, and it's not stated here as a question, but essentially Moses is asking, can somebody else do it? Can someone else obey? God, can you send somebody else? God, can someone else go love my neighbor? Can someone else go love the broken and hurting? Because that sounds really hard. God, my, my parents have a lot more faith than I do. Can I just depend on their faith? Can I just rest on them? Is that enough? God, my friends have a lot more skills than I do. You really should probably send one of them to do this because I'm probably going to mess it up. Can somebody else please go do this? And the scary and true answer to this question is no. No, they can't. God is calling you to follow him in your neighborhood, in your family, on that aisle in the grocery store, in that booth in the restaurant. No, Moses, this is your commission. God is calling you because of and in spite of everything he knows about you. This is your call to obey, and only you can. A quick question for you. Feel free to just shout out an answer when you know it. In Moses' objections and questions, who is Moses focused on? Himself. In God's replies, who is God focused on? He's talking to Moses. Who's he talking about, though? Himself. God talks about himself. Moses says, God, I can't. And God says, I'll do it. Moses keeps trying to say he can't do it, and God doesn't disagree with him, but he doesn't agree with him either. Moses says, God, I can't do it. God says, I'll be with you. God, I can't do it. I'll do it. Moses says, God, I can't do it. God says, did I stutter? Moses says, no, but I do. Thank you. Okay. Be here all morning. Okay. Whew. Moses is entirely focused on himself on what he can't accomplish. And this is evidence to me that Moses was feeling a ton of shame as he stood there on that holy ground in front of God's burning bush. Shame and guilt are slightly different things. 
Guilt is the recognition that we have done something wrong. God asks us to recognize our guilt. It's what we do in communion. In communion, we hold our guilt up next to Jesus' forgiveness and go, wow, Jesus' forgiveness is so much bigger than my sin and guilt and mess. We recognize our guilt, the things that we have done wrong. Shame is the belief that something I have done or said makes me unworthy of being loved and unworthy of belonging. Shame is the belief that I can't be loved and I can't belong because of what I did or said and what that says about me. Guilt is what we've done. Shame is what we let it convince us of about ourselves. And shame has some dire, dire consequences for those of us who are trying to follow God in our lives every day. The first is that shame makes self the focus. Shame makes self the focus. And this is a little bit of a weird one because when we feel ashamed, most of us try to hide. We can do that a couple different ways. Most of us try to hide in the shadows, don't be in the spotlight, don't let anybody notice me. If I have to interact with people, I'll keep it real shallow so that nobody really gets to know me and knows how horrible I am. Some of us compensate for our shame by being in the spotlight, by trying to be the most fun person in the room, by trying to say, everybody look at the awesome things I can do so that nobody looks at the shadows over here that I don't want you to see. Either way, whether we're hiding or shallow or over the top, what we're focused on is ourselves. I focus on myself and making sure that I am hidden well enough that I look capable enough, that nobody gets to see the part of me that I am ashamed of. The second consequence is that shame calls grace a liar. Shame calls grace a liar. God offers us his grace, his forgiveness and presence and love and shame says, that cannot possibly be true. I mean, maybe it can be true for that person over there, but it certainly cannot be true for me. Grace says, you are forgiven. Shame says, do you even know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Do you know how much I've messed up and how much I've failed? And besides, God, to accept your forgiveness, I'd have to forgive myself, and I am just not forgivable. Grace says, I am with you. And shame says, yeah, but can I trust you? Yeah, but will you stay with me? Yeah, but will you protect me? I'm not really worth protecting, you know? Grace says, I love you, and you are welcome to be here with me. And shame says, yeah, but when you find out who I really am, God, you're gonna reject me? 
Like when I mess up the next time, when I disobey again, are you gonna ditch me? Am I on my own? Grace says, I am always with you. And I will give you the power and the courage and the faith to do the things that I am calling you to do. And shame says, can somebody else do that? Can someone else obey? Because I'm pretty convinced that I am going to mess it up. So here's what you and I need to know is true for each and every one of us. Grace is true, and it applies to you. Grace is really, really true. It's really real. And it really is for you, because God is for you. You. God gives it to you not because you've earned it, which is sometimes kind of frustrating because I'd kind of like to believe I earned it. God gives it to you not because you've earned it, but because he loves you. And that's enough for him. Because he wants you to know that you are loved and you are welcome to stand in his holy ground. Grace is not just for the person who seems like they have it all together. And grace is not just for that person who has messed up so much worse than you have. Grace is for you. Grace is offered to you through the loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And like any good gift, you do have to accept it but all you have to do is accept it. To accept and believe that Jesus gave up his life so that you could have life and so that you would be forgiven of your sin and mess. So you would be able to receive grace and not have to deal with shame anymore. And we wrestle with our shame. And we try to call grace a liar and we try to fight it off. And God stays present with us. Not afraid of our doubts and our questions. He's not afraid of our shame. And he continues to offer us his grace. His grace that is true and real and really is for you. So the question is, who are you going to trust? Yourself and your shame Or an almighty God who says you are loved and forgiven. Grace is offered to you. And all you have to do is accept. The opportunity to love your neighbor is offered to you. The calling is made to you. And all you have to do is accept. So this week, who are you going to trust? Your shame 
or God's grace. As we work that out and as we sing together, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the way you put your love on display through Jesus. For the grace that you give us through Christ's sacrifice. For the life and the forgiveness and the calling that you offer us. God, where we doubt our calling, would you give us faith? Where we believe what shame says about us, would you give us grace? God, where we are lost and broken, would you remind us that we are found by you? That you will meet with us, that you will give us life and hope, a future and a purpose, even in the most deserted of places. Father God, we, we want to put our trust in you and in your grace. And so we pray all this in the name that made it possible, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.